0: Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Lisa Taylor is with us today. Lisa Taylor is a pastoral sex addiction specialist and a postgrad counseling student living in New Zealand. She spent the last several years counseling and supporting women whose lives, like her own, have been impacted by a husband's struggle with sex addiction, sex offending, or sexual integrity issues. Her books on this topic include Beyond Betrayal, Beyond Betrayal, Couples Guide, and There's What on My Phone? a fictional story for youth who struggle. She also runs an online community blog for partners at beyondbetrayal.community. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Anne, it's good to be here. Lisa, you did a survey a couple of years back on the topic of spiritual crisis in partners of sex addicts. Can you tell us more about that?
1: A couple years ago, while I was still working on the Beyond Betrayal book, it struck me that this was an important topic to get some information on that I wanted to include it in the book. And at the same time, Marsha Means, who runs the Circle of Joy, was saying she was interested in getting some groups going for people who are struggling with this particular aspect of the journey. Donna Meredith Dixon was beginning her work on A Door of Hope which is a peer facilitator training manual and a whole program. And she also said that this was a topic that was of great interest to her and that she wanted covered in her book. So we all got together and said, what do we want to know? We put together some questions and then we sent it out to Marsha's mailing list and we had
0: over 100 women get
1: back to us and share their stories with
0: us. I bet you had a lot of pain that came back to you.
1: Absolutely.
0: A lot of incredible stories. Yeah. So what was your particular interest in the topic? I guess the reason why I really felt I wanted
1: to include something about this in the book was I had experienced this. I have a faith background. I have since I was a little kid. Those who know me a little bit more will know that I'm in my second marriage right now. to I'm a man who's recovering from this porn addiction. But my first marriage didn't make it. And particularly as that first marriage was falling apart, I was very active in my local church. I hit a lot of abuse, and I I really went through quite a deep spiritual crisis that would last for years. And I really questioned whether God could still love me because I was being rejected by the church for making a stand and walking away from this poisonous relationship with a man who was not willing to get help for his sex addiction. He wasn't even willing to stop lying. And I really felt that was some of the lowest points of my life. And I think having my faith kind of pulled out from underneath me was part of why that was such a low, low time for me. And I I really felt that had there been support, had people been talking about this, perhaps I wouldn't have hit such a low point. Perhaps it would have been an easier journey.
0: When you say you hit abuse... Do you mean that you were abused by the church?
1: Yes, unfortunately. And mine's one of many, many stories. They're all slightly different, but mm-hmm. the, the similar thread runs through all of them, and that, that it's somehow it's not the man's fault, it's the woman's fault, if she, especially if she decides to make a strong boundary, like, I'm leaving if you don't address this, if you don't get help. I got threatening letters from a pastor throughout the four or five years I was single, living as a solo mom in a different city. I moved cities to get a full-time job. Eventually, that would result even in a death threat. And it's interesting, my mother, who also had to leave my father for his chronic infidelity, she went through almost exactly the same thing. She got threatening phone calls. Ultimately, she ended up with a death threat as well. You know, I was really blessed that I had learned from her how to stand up to some spiritual abuse. She ended up bringing in the authorities over that. And I basically had to stand up to this particular pastor who'd been sending me these mails and say the same thing. If I continue to hear from you, I will be bringing in the authorities and sharing your letters with them because Mm -hmm. what you're doing is actually criminal.
0: My experience was that my particular church leader was so, let's see, how do I word this? He was in so far over his head. He did not understand what was going on. And instead of referring out to like adult protective services, he took it upon himself to play the, hmm, okay, he said, she said, how do I decide who's telling the truth kind of a thing? And when that happens, because sex addiction and lying are not a communication issue, they're an addiction issue, they're an abuse issue, it just sets the woman up for more abuse to be abused by her church or her church leaders. So in your survey, I'm so interested in this survey, what did it reveal about spiritual crises in partners of sex addicts?
1: So what it revealed was that of the over 100 women who had answered, more than 63% felt that they had gone through a significant spiritual crisis as part of their journey, usually pretty close to the time of discovery. The only thing kind of surprising about that to those of us who were running this survey was But the number was that low. Now, it was interesting to watch some of the women answering the questions because some of them started off saying, no, I I didn't go through a spiritual crisis. But as they continued to answer the questions on the form, by the end where there was just an open comments field, they went, you know what? I hadn't thought I had gone through a spiritual crisis, but I can see now that I actually did. Which makes you realize that sometimes The types of trauma symptoms that a woman is facing, including kind of that numbness, they can be so overwhelming that they may not even realize that they're having a crisis of faith, an existential crisis, that their larger spiritual framework has become shaky in this. That was quite interesting, just on its own. What we were hearing from women as well was that for some women, the spiritual crisis really centered around their broader belief in God, in a higher power, but for a lot it was also just around the church and around other people who share their faith, their normal faith community. For some women, it was both. When we looked at the women who were really feeling distrustful of God, of their higher power, they talked about feeling duped by Mm -hmm. him. They talked about feelings of injustice, feeling, I have been a really solid, faithful person In my faith community, why would something like this happen to me? I've been solid and faithful in my marriage. Why would something like this happen to me? It's not fair. There was also people who talked about feelings of rejection by God or judgment. Some talked about feeling abandoned by God. And then a lot of those people also were experiencing something similar in the church, interestingly. So they were experiencing rejection in their church or their faith community. They were experiencing abandonment in their faith community, and sometimes they were experiencing outright persecution,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of like my story, and my mother's story, and many other women's stories.
0: That's so sad, especially because the women are in so much pain, and they want to go to their faith to feel comforted and to feel understood, because they're rejected by their spouse. And then... They feel like they're rejected by God or their faith community. And so it feels so alone, completely and totally isolated. And who will help me? It feels terrible. Did you notice that there was any particular type of partner?
1: Yeah, what came up in our results was that the more deeply a a woman was involved in her faith community, particularly if she was, say, the spouse of the head of the community or was involved in some kind of ministering within that community, the more she felt it. Particularly those wives of leadership, um, we call them sometimes ministry wives, they really had their world rocked. We can only guess as to why that is. I have talked to a number of them about this and examining their results to us. I would say that so much more of their world leans heavily on the acceptance of their faith community and... A certain type of image within their faith community. They had so much more to lose, I guess, from their husband's story coming out. And most of them that I've dealt with over the years, they have to keep a really high level of anonymity because the fear of the loss of their world, really, if his issue should be discovered. So another type of wife or partner who was likely to be highly impacted was Wives who'd had a difficult past and had come to faith as adults. And often for those people, their understanding of the world was, well, I suffered a lot in my relationships in the past because I didn't have my faith and I didn't have my faith community. But now I've got this relationship and I've met a man who's got that relationship. So now we're going to have the ideal marriage. When they find out that their ideal Christian husband or a husband of their faith is actually struggling just as much as any guy that they dated previously or been married to previously or with previously, it really causes quite a crisis because they had a false understanding of what it would be like to be with somebody who had a faith. That's not to imply that they were naive or anything like that, because that's certainly what churches teach, that we don't have those kinds of problems here. And that's often not explicitly stated, but it's implied frequently. So it's not really a wonder that people who haven't been long in a faith community don't understand that that's not actually the case. Another type of wife or partner who struggled a lot were those who had been spiritually abused or persecuted by the church, which we've kind of already talked about. But the other is usually wives whose husbands had been really spiritually abusive to them over the course of the marriage, which is sadly all too common with sex addicts.
0: I had this sense that if I obey the commandments, if I am doing the best I can, if I'm repenting, if I'm forgiving, if I'm loving, then I would be blessed. And then realizing that all my forgiving and serving and loving was actually enabling my husband's abuse And that I was never taught to set boundaries. And basically that my religion had let me down. They had said over and over, we don't accept abuse. You know, you shouldn't stand for abuse. But at the same time, in the actual everyday practical living, it wasn't brought up. I wasn't taught how to set boundaries. So I kind of felt like God let me down and my community let me down because they didn't prepare me for this situation. And then when I did bring it up and say, this is the situation They didn't believe me, and they brought out love, forgiveness, and service instead of Mm. boundaries. It felt like they were all on the wrong side, that they were standing up for and enabling an abuser. And that's the oversimplification I think we often see in churches where we want to
1: apply a formula to a problem instead of actually looking at what are the specific ins and outs of this problem. Sometimes I summarize Some of what you're talking about is grace to him and nuts to you. You know, we'll just apply the grace formula. You just need to forgive more and it'll all be solved. That's not true. We were talking earlier about your pastor being in way over his head. Mm -hmm. For those who like that formulaic approach, they are in over their head very quickly. Mm -hmm. They don't understand. Along with addiction goes a lot of lying a lot of minimize, rationalize, justify, blame. It's called addictive thinking. There's whole books written on it, but a lot of them aren't aware of that. And so they're kind of going with some basic formulas. And part of the basic formula for a lot of faith community is that we stand up for men and blame women. Most of them would never think of it in those kinds of terms. But if you watch the pattern, there's a whole history of if you have to side with one or the other, you side with the man. There may be others that disagree with me, and I'm sure there are churches with which that's the exception. And I've seen some of those churches that are the exception to that, and I'm thankful for them. But sadly, a lot of them have a bit of a blame-the-woman mentality. And that's kind of what I saw in my circumstances, too. The boys all got together, and they wanted to believe what my first husband said. And nobody asked me, sorry, not nobody, very few people asked me, what's your side of the story here?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, he was a pathological liar,
0: And even if they do say, what's your side of the story, then they tend to look at it, okay, there's his side of the story, and there's her side of the story. And the truth is somewhere in between, rather than seeing it like the riddle of the knights and the knaves, where the knights always tell the truth, and the knaves always lie. And so how can you determine who is a knight and who is a knave? And this is the riddle of an addict and his wife, is that they're seeing it as the truth is somewhere in the middle when really there's someone who is telling the truth and then there's a pathological liar and so yeah you just need to believe the woman in that situation she's telling you the truth and he's trying to manipulate and and do the image management thing yeah I tell people that and they're like that's too simple (laughs) I'm like it actually could be that simple depending on the situation
1: it can. I guess sometimes it's not. But the reality is it can be very difficult for a woman to talk about these things. We're often not over-exaggerating. If anything, we're often holding some of our evidence back. Back, yeah. Because some of the stuff is going on in our bedrooms. Some yeah. of the stuff that we're seeing, and we're not really keen to go talking to our pastor about that. I don't know about you. No. I wasn't yeah. really keen. No. And I have heard that from other women too. Sometimes mm-hmm. some of that evidence that we're gathering is abuse in the bedroom, or it's it's neglect in the bedroom at a, at a high order, and just funky stuff that we have difficulty explaining, mm-hmm. but which is cluing us into the fact that this guy is not who he says he is, right. and you know there's something seriously wrong. I'm sure there are some women who might be putting out their uh, perception that's being jaded by anger, and that's usually after she's had a guts full of abuse, though. Exactly. There's going to be a lot more truth in what she's saying, you know. Even if her perspective is slightly skewed, mm-hmm. she doesn't have the impetus to lie and hide that he does.
0: Right, and I agree with you that if anything, she's holding it back. But the interesting thing is, we constantly get accused of exaggerating when yeah, <laughs> you must be exaggerating. Yeah, I'm like I I'm not exaggerating. But then what do you say? Like then you're trying to prove you're not exaggerating, and then you look more and more crazy, right? So it's like this downward spiral. That is part of the factor
1: that is making this so difficult for women in a faith community situation is that her trauma symptoms are making her look really crazy, whereas often the husband has worked really, really hard to maintain this smooth image. Mm -hmm. And we should be saying, wow, the level of emotion she's exhibiting Proves the veracity of her statements. Mm-hmm. It actually should lend credence to what she's saying. And his too smooth by far should be getting picked up on people's radar as going, hang on, that alone should be a cue that he's probably not being genuine or authentic with us.
0: Mm-hmm. But they don't. People tend to see it as the opposite. They just look out of control. Rather than seeing it as genuine distress, yeah, they see it as she's just crazy.
1: I think where sex addiction has gone in the last even decade, where you think where where pornography has gone in the last decade is so horrific. If that is not part of your purview, if you've never really sat and considered the ways people can go off the rails sexually, it can really seem like it surely not. Surely he's not doing that. Surely it can't be that bad. Surely it's not as awful as you're saying, but it is. Right. There are researchers and experts who will tell you. It is that bad. Mm -hmm. It's horrific.
0: Yeah, and just as a podcaster, I know, because I hear these stories every day from women all over the world. I'm sure that you do, too. So in terms of when we're talking about women being
1: spiritually abused or persecuted by their church, and I'm sure between the two of us, we could list dozens of stories. Even just this morning, I received an email from a woman thanking me for talking about the spiritual abuse issue on my website and telling me a little bit of her story, which included when her husband's infidelity was found out by the church, they began policing her sex life, telling her she needed to be making herself more available and started actually asking questions on a regular basis about her availability. And She said, you know, I began having sex with my husband because of pressure from the church, Mm -hmm. and I started to hate sex. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The good thing in their story was both the husband and wife began to see this as completely poisonous, and that it was bringing up other problems in their marriage, and they left that faith community. Mm-hmm. And the sad reality is sometimes there is no answer to getting away from the abuse outside of leaving a particular faith community. And some people leave all faith communities for a time because of this. I think that's really understandable, and I never criticized people for doing what they needed to do to protect themselves.
0: <sighs> that's so hard. You mentioned the survey also looked at spiritual growth, and what did it show about that?
1: That's the happy side of the story. So many of these women, more than the 63%, the 79%, said that through this journey of discovering their husband's sex addiction, porn addiction, and walking through a crisis, they came to a stronger place in their faith as part of that journey. And for some of the women, a small percentage, that was pretty instant. They found out and they just kind of flopped into God's arms for comfort. Like one woman said, no, that had always been my safe place. And so I went there immediately. But for more women, it was a part of kind of coming through the spiritual crisis. They ended up with a strengthened faith. And others talked about having a qualitatively better relationship with God on the other side of this. By that I mean they'd always had kind of a relationship with God. And I, I would say this was my experience as well, particularly in the in the second marriage. I attended church. I had a relationship with God. But God and I are much closer. I feel like I get him at a much deeper level. And it's a much more life-giving the relationship I have with him, having gone through seven years of walking through this.
0: I would be interested to know how women are reconnecting with God? I think this is actually really a question. For me, it was my prayer time. It was my meditation time
1: that did it for me. But I have certainly heard from other women as well. It's joining a support group and seeing other women's faith and how it's bolstering them and having those women come around and support them in just a really loving, non-pressuring way, bringing them back to maybe a faith they had in childhood. They begin to reconnect with their faith and with God. So I certainly hear both of those. Discipline as well, like doing the 12 steps, I think can be an awesome way to really begin to think again and re-engage your higher power, reconnect with God. There's different ways that women get brought back to it. But I think the result often ends up the same where they are more at peace. They feel stronger. They feel more loved and supported.
0: Yeah, going through that process. Any thoughts on how or why women come to a place of spiritual growth as a result of betrayal?
1: My faith is a Christian faith, and
0: the Bible talks
1: about this idea that trials in general are going to grow us, they're going to mature us. So I, I think there's a little bit of it as that. I think we kind of hinted at it a little bit as we were talking about the abuse in the church. Well, a lot of us begin to rethink our faith. And I, I think one of my survey respondents said, I began to question everything I thought I'd ever known about God. Mm-hmm. And I think we really do. We start to, to look at it and go, what in my beliefs is really core and important and feels really fundamentally true? And what is just baggage? Like, for example, the whole we don't have boundaries thing. Right. Or, or stuff about women's place. Some very fundamental things about the nature of God, for example, that we begin to think through more carefully the nature of God itself I and mean, that's an enormous issue and people don't even realize that they're often carrying contradictory pictures of God around with them and he is complex and he is mysterious and I don't think we have to wheedle him down to something that fits in our pocket and this is my pocket God but at the same time he wants to show us his goodness to women at the time of their suffering because he talks about in the bible his thoughts his heart are so towards the suffering are so towards the marginalized mm-hmm. are so towards often he talk about the widows and the orphans and he wants justice for the widows and the orphans and i think we've got a generation of porn widows and sex addiction orphans out there that god is so for mm-hmm. and he wants to see them treated well he wants to see justice for them he wants to see them lifted up and I like to see the church beginning to respond to God's heart in that, and sometimes they're not. Mm-hmm. The third other thing that I'm seeing as a result is that women like myself really idolize marriage. That's something I started probably in childhood. That really fell by the wayside as part of this journey, not surprisingly. Sadly, it took me two times before I was able to get that one to fall by the wayside. But. By the second round, second marriage with a porn addict, I realized that marriage was never going to fulfill all my great longings for love and relationship. That was something really I could only find in God. That was for me a big part of my spiritual growth. I've heard this from a number of other women as well.
0: Speaking of justice for the widows, I did a podcast episode about Luke 18 and the parable of the unjust judge how the widow is asking him to avenge her. And he's kind of like, no, no, go away. And then in the end, he thinks, oh, I know a way of getting her to go away. I'll just put it back on God. I'll just say, God will avenge you in this right time. And then he doesn't actually do anything. That parable explains it perfectly, that what the porn widows want is justice. They want their... Husbands to be held accountable by God and by the church for their abuse and their infidelity. I did my own informal survey, and we found that when that happens, the wife feels more supported. So if there's accountability and the church holds him accountable for his abuse and his infidelity, then the wife feels supported. She feels like, yes, my faith does put their money where their mouth is that they preach these things and then they actually take action to make sure that people are protected. Yes. So stories where the church leader hears about the abuse or hears about something and calls the authorities, the women feel better than when the church leader hears about the abuse and does not call the authorities, okay. for example.
1: See, the church could be helping with the spiritual crisis. They could be helping catapult women into the spiritual growth Yep, and circumvent the whole spiritual crisis situation if they were willing to get God's heart, you know, faster, and mm-hmm. and and do these things. I'm really glad you did that survey, and I'm I'm so glad you're talking about this stuff. I was thinking about writing this up myself too, because I also see it as a theme with women. Again and again, I hear women feeling kind of guilty for wanting justice or like they're doing something wrong, and I always say no, that's coming from a really healthy place in you. That's That's coming from God's heart. See, actually, God wants justice for you, too.
0: Yeah. In my faith tradition, one of our early leaders, he's in a really bad spot, and he's praying, and he's saying, God, where are you? And everybody reads that, and they think, oh, he was so patient, and he was waiting for God. He was still being obedient. But then there's this verse where he actually asks for justice from God. He says, God, will you avenge my adversaries? It's interesting that they kind of just gloss over that part, that here is someone who is this amazing leader in our church who everybody adores and reveres as this strong spiritual person, and there he is asking for justice. What's wrong with us asking for justice?
1: Very similar story. We often quote, I think it's Isaiah 63. I have a really bad memory for numbers, but it's the one where Isaiah is talking about, and Jesus claims this set of verses for himself. when We read about that in the book of Luke, where he's there to bind up the anointed one, the Messiah is there to bind up brokenhearted mm-hmm. and to release the captive. And we all stop there and we forget that it goes down and it's, he's going to declare the day of vengeance on your enemies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We forget that part of healing is actually For there to be some justice against those who have wronged the brokenhearted, the prisoner. God hasn't forgotten that. He puts it right in there, but we do. We gloss over it. We're like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. Mm
0: -hmm. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I have had some women who have seen that sort of justice take place in their husband or ex-husband. I yet have not observed that. (laughs) But maybe someday, maybe in the next life. That's what I always say. I don't know. Mm Yeah. So as you've written your amazing book, Beyond Betrayal, and you've talked with women all over the world, what would you say to a woman who says she's in a spiritual crisis on account of her husband's sex addiction?
1: I would just say that is so normal. Because often she'll feel like it's just me. I'm like the bad only person who's who's shaking my fist at God. And I'll be like, not a chance. So normal. Majority of women are going to go through some kind of crisis like this. Please don't be ashamed of it. You know, if you feel like you need to go outside and shake your fist at God and throw some stuff up at the sky and scream at him, do it. Do not be concerned about committing some kind of unforgivable sin or some heresy because God is big enough. And I think if you are keeping those lines of communication going, that's amazing. Just keep it going, even if it feels like I have nothing good to say to you. And I have no nice way to say it, do it anyway, because he is a good father and a good parent can take this stuff. He knows how you're feeling. He loves you and he wants you to just pour out the poison to him. And that's what you would be doing. You're just pouring out the poison to him.
0: That reminds me of the seventh step prayer, which says, God, I'm ready that you will have all of me, the good and the bad. That's mm, That's right. I'm willing now to let you see me in this vulnerable state yeah. rather than this, what I want or what my dreams are, or you know, what my hopes are, but no, like I'm willing to have you see me as I am this broken person in despair. Maybe that's another part of the
1: spiritual growth is that we hit new levels of vulnerability with God and yeah. we find that we are still accepted that we are Still loved because I really did sense God's love for me and care in the midst of my angriest days at Him and the days when I was shunning Him.
0: I went through, I would say, about a nine month to 12 month drought where I really could not feel God at all. And it was frustrating because mm-hmm. I was praying and I was reading my scriptures. I, I study the scriptures every day. And I just felt trauma and sadness and horror. I said it felt like the jaws of hell were gaping after me. I spent a lot of time at church crying in the bathroom stall. I continued to pray and I continued to study my scriptures. And then eventually the fog lifted and now I feel his love every day. I worry because I know how awful it feels. To be in that place where you pray and you can't feel anything. So many women have told me that or they've said, you know, I've tried the prayer thing. I've tried the scriptures thing, but I never get any answers. So I gave up. That makes sense to me. If I were that person, I probably would too. And then I think, wait a minute, I was in that situation for nine Uh months. But I think I had so many spiritual experiences from before that time to draw on during that time of drought that I thought, I know this works. I'm just going to keep going, even though I can't feel it now. Oh, oh
1: dear. Yeah. It was rough. So yes.
0: Sometimes it doesn't
1: feel like a place of comfort, you know, Mm -hmm. um, at those times.
0: Yeah. So I had my group and I have very good friends and I have a family. So I had support And I was able to express how I was feeling. I was able to say, this is how I'm feeling. And they were amazing. Instead of saying, well, you should forgive and then you'll feel better. Right? I think this comes down to forgiveness. They didn't say that. They said, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's what you need to hear. When we get those platitudes of, well, forgive and you'll feel better. The trauma is so intense. Like forgiveness isn't even on the table right then. No. No, absolutely
1: not. Um, surviving is on the table. yeah, and God gets that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In my personal in- interactions with God, I felt no pressure whatsoever to forgive. I just felt, let's just survive this. Come on, yeah. child, i'm I'm just behind you helping you survive this. Mm-hmm. And then in time, it it came up as something that made sense. I was ready for it, but that was months, months, was months yeah. the
0: actually, I-, I did feel God. I just didn't feel comforted. I felt him and he gave me an answer consistently for nine months. And the answer was, wait. And I didn't like that answer. <laughs> and I felt uncomfortable about it. And so I was mad and I was not comforted. I think that's that's a better way to describe it. When you said that. So I was communicating with God and he was communicating with me. And he was saying, wait, be still. But I was like, that's not a solution. <laughs> That's right. Right? Forget that. And so I think that's why I didn't feel comforted. This was in between when my husband was arrested and he moved out of our home and did nothing to try and get back in the home. And then nine months later when he filed for divorce. So during those nine months of just literally waiting, holding a no contact boundary for him to do something that would indicate that he could maybe be in recovery or maybe he understood what was happening... God just said, wait. It was just the most uncomfortable, difficult, long, harrowing, awful nine months where I could not feel comforted, even though I would try and try and try. My sponsor finally said, okay, what you really need is a really soft blanket and a really soft pillow and climb into your closet and just cry in there and see if that helps you feel comfort. You know, I mean, we got to the point where like, it was like, maybe a teddy bear will help you. (laughs) It was so... Oh, it was so bad. But now I'm feeling fantastic. And I'm so grateful for God for giving me that answer to wait and for helping me know what no contact meant. He's the one that set the no contact boundary. The night my husband got arrested, I had no idea that was going to happen. So I can see God's hand in my life, but only in hindsight. Couldn't see it when I was in, in it in the moment. Yeah, And in the moment, what we
1: sometimes need is a community that just lifts us up. A community that just says, I will weep with those who leap. I, yeah. I'm not going to sit here and preach to you like Job's friends. I'm just going to sit here quietly with you and share your pain.
0: Yep.
1: That's one of my main messages to the church these days. You don't understand. If you've not been there, just trust me, you don't understand. <laughs> and that's okay as long as you're willing to keep your advice and all that to yourself for now. And just sit and share her pain mm-hmm. and pray for her her up and ask how you can help that's going to help get out of their spiritual crisis that's that's some of the best things you can do it's such a hard, such a hard journey
0: it is well, lisa thank you so much for being here today it is such an honor to have you i have had so many women say beyond betrayal was the book that really helped them thank you and
1: it is an honor to be invited to talk with you and to get to know you better. And I'm so excited about what BTR is doing. And I'm already talking about it to like, everybody who will listen. You as well, you and your team, keep up the awesome work you're doing.
0: Thank you. If this podcast is helpful to you, will you please rate it on iTunes? Each rating helps increase our visibility in iTunes and helps more women find us. Also, this podcast is brought to you by your donations. Betrayal Trauma Recovery is a nonprofit, so please donate today. And until next time, stay safe out there.